I want to um, give you a brief update about the situation in Kosovo. It is clear that Serb forces are now engaged in further attacks on Kosovar civilians. Already more than 40,000 Serb security forces are poised in and around Kosovo with additional units on the way. These actions are in clear violation of commitments Serbia made last October when we obtained the ceasefire agreement. If President Milosevic continues to choose aggression over peace, NATO's military plans must continue to move forward. We're back. Finally. Finally. We keep, we <laughs> tend to keep saying that, but anyway. I promise we don't suck this bad and we won't suck this bad in the new year. It's just been a really crazy couple of months. It's getting to be Christmas time, people. I mean, you also, understand. Like we've told you at the beginning of all these episodes, these episodes are really difficult. And they're That's true. Kind of burning us out. I don't know. I'm ready to be done. It was an ambitious task. I'm glad we did it, but uh, yeah. We got it out of the way. It's, uh, it's It was ambitious. Just wait until uh, other shit we get into. Anyway, welcome back to Panastoria and welcome to Panastoria for any of our new listeners. My name is Jonah. I'm Lindsay. Welcome. If you are a new listener, please know you're coming in on episode four of a four-part series. So while you don't have to listen to the other ones, we recommend you do because otherwise this is even more confusing. Well, we definitely recommend you listen to the first three of the Yugoslav Wars, at least. Other than that, you don't have to, but please listen to everyone. We'd appreciate it. We'd love it. You'd have our undying gratitude and support. It's 17 hours of history content. How Wow, we're already at that much hair. I know. I was looking at that on my... That's what it said on my iTunes. Anyway, hello. Just a couple things to point out. We got new listeners in India... Apparently, Australia is now on the list, and yesterday I checked, Iceland's now on the list. Oh, so we got dope. Iceland listeners. We love Thanks, you, Iceland. Iceland. Cheers. We're at eight hundred and sixty-one total downloads. I just checked now, and we're doing I'm pretty happy with that. We're pretty. Cute. I mean, for a first season, yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty it's all right with that. Excellent. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, we'll continue now. (laughs) We'll stop patting ourselves on the back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Kosovo War was the final conflict in this clusterfuck of a situation. Very difficult because there wasn't, again, it was even more convoluted than Bosnia because both sides were definitely not the good guys. And in certain arguments, you could say that the freedom fighters in this one were worse than Serbia, which is saying a lot. That's up to you to decide, but anyway. Going to start with the demographics again. These are the 1991 census demographics. The problem is that most of the Albanian and Roma populations boycotted the census because they felt it was just part of the Serbian institution, which it was. Uh, So these are just an estimate of what the demographics in 1991 actually were. So the Albanian population in Kosovo was 81.6%. The Serbian population was 9.9%. And then the Bosniak slash Gorani population was 3.1%. And Gorani means Serbian Muslims. And then the remaining 4.65% was a mixture of Montenegrin, Croats, Yugoslavs, Romani slash Ashkali, 
Turks, Macedonians, and just general other. Again, I couldn't find any religious stats on this from this time, but it was predominantly Muslim along with Catholic and Orthodox minorities. When we left off with Bosnia, it looked like the war might have been over. Yugoslavia is basically done. It's a splinter of its former self. Bosnia, Croatia, and Slovenia and Macedonia are all independent. But then one little shard from the bottom was started to pick at the giant. And this was, of course, Kosovo. For this whole time, just to recap, Kosovo was not one of the independent republics. It was an autonomous province during Yugoslavia's existence. And then later had that autonomy dissolved and absorbed back into Serbia. They were not happy about that. They have, as you guys heard, they had a pretty predominantly Albanian population. And what's interesting is that this is one of those conflicts where it wasn't necessarily that they wanted to be independent. It's that they wanted to join another country. So in short, after the war... In Bosnia, there was a low-level insurgency of the Kosovo Liberation Army. They were an Albanian nationalist organization, and they sought the merger of Kosovo with Albania, and it was founded in 1993. They were being supplied by Albania for much of the war. And as I said, they were doing small-level attacks, kidnappings, robberies, stuff like that. Almost like highwaymen back back in the day. Issues happened in 1997. Albania's government actually collapsed. It's a long story, and I'm sure we're going to do a whole episode on that, but it collapsed because of a Ponzi scheme and just turned into chaos, its own kind of civil war, but that's neither here nor there. That kind of disrupted things, supplies for the KLA, but they continued to fight against the Serbians. When the conflicts really started to erupt, the KLA in 1997 and 1998, they increased their attacks within what's known as the Drenica Valley, where the KLA co-founder Adam Jashari, his base of operations, was located. The goal was to increase KLA-controlled territory to extend to the border with Albania in order to secure a supply line. Serbian police and JNA forces initiated a crackdown on the KLA insurgents in the beginning of 1998. Meanwhile, the KLA clashed with Serbian police, and this resulted in 16 KLA dead and four Serbian police officers dead. The JNA and police and Serbian police were seen to have used excessive force in their retaliation against the KLA, with much of the actions being against the Albanian civilian population by the end of February 1998. Accusations of summary executions committed by the KLA were reported, but they were largely ignored by the international community because Serbia's reputation at this point was horrible. Serbian police were in pursuit of Jashari, and they engaged with KLA forces, and 60 Albanian civilians were killed in the crossfire, 18 of which were women and 10 were under the age of 16. Serbian forces searching for Jashari besieged the town of Prikads, where a bulk of the family of his family was located. Fifty-six of the Jashari family were killed, including women, children, and the elderly. Adam Jashari was also killed, along with his brother. As a result of this massacre, thousands of ethnic Albanians flocked to join the KLA in the massacre's aftermath, and the Jashari family became martyrs for the Kosovo War. KLA numbers jumped from a few hundred to over 10,000 by April. 
400 Amer Albanian American volunteers also traveled to Kosovo to join the KLA, forming what is known as the Atlantic Battalion. The incident also caused widespread condemnation of Serbia from the international community, with the U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright saying, quote, This crisis is not an internal affair of the FRY, which is, stands for the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. On March 24th, JNA forces surrounded the village of Glodnje and engaged in KLA forces at their compound. However, KLA forces managed to mostly slip away and escape the destruction. With the sudden boost in the number of KLA forces, they actually began to organize into a proper army. And the generals organized them into proper operative zones around Kosovo, each with two to eight brigades within the jurisdiction reporting to the General HQ. Furthermore, former JNA members uh, living in Kosovo were recruited into the KLA ranks as strategic experts and leaders. These commanders studied the NATO standard operating procedures and organizational structure in order for KLA to adopt those methods as well. So they were learning from the big guys, essentially. The guys that they saw as who would be their saviors, essentially. Then from mid-1998 into 1999, regular insurgent attacks on JNA and Serbian positions continued. And this is when the international community was like, okay, we're done with Serbia. We're done with Yugoslavia at this point. And, well, we return to NATO now. Like we mentioned... Uh... In Bosnia, Bosnia, not Bosnia, Bosnia, <laughs> um, NATO got involved mostly through airstrikes, and they were a lot more heavily involved in Kosovo even than they were in Bosnia, but part of the reason they got involved in Bosnia was due to the severity of crimes happening. So they decided to get involved at, or they didn't really decide, but <laughs> they, uh, they became involved in Kosovo, but just in like brief little bits about the NATO operation. So NATO's been in Kosovo since June 1999 and are still actually there. And they're there in support of international efforts to build peace and stability in the region. So Kosovo Force, or K4, was established when NATO's 78-day air campaign against Milosevic's regime was over. The goal of that air campaign was to put an end to the violence, which didn't totally happen. Um, <laughs> but the operation derives its mandate from the security, UN Security Council Resolution 1244 and the military technical agreement between NATO the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and Serbia. The original objectives of K4 were to deter renewed hostilities, establish a secure environment, and ensure public safety and order, to demilitarize the Kosovo Liberation Army, and support the international humanitarian effort and coordinate with the international civil presence that was already there. And today, K4 continues to contribute towards maintaining a safe and secure environment in Kosovo. I throw my pen across the room. Uh, and freedom of movement for all. So yeah, they're still there. But I'll go through kind of the main things that K4 was involved in in Kosovo. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, as I said, K4 deployed in Kosovo on the 12th of June 1999, following their air campaign. And that air campaign had been launched in 19, March 1999, trying to halt and reverse the humanitarian catastrophe that was unfolding. The UN Security Council resolution was adopted on the 10th of June, and on June 12th, the first elements of NATO-led forces entered Kosovo, and then by June 20th, the... Serb forces had withdrawn. So they did an air campaign before. It was clearly not working great. And so they decided to actually go in in person. So K4 was initially composed of some 50,000 troops. 
from NATO member countries and another and other non-NATO countries, including Russia, under unified command and control. After the Ratsak massacre on January 15th, 1999, NATO decided that the conflict could only be settled by introducing a military peacekeeping force under the auspices of NATO to forcibly restrain the two sides. It was pretty embarrassing to NATO and other international forces, and there was a lot of public outcry with that massacre. So on January 30th, 1999, NATO issued a statement that the North Atlantic Council had agreed that the, quote, NATO Secretary General may authorize airstrikes against targets on FRY territory to compel compliance with the demands of the international community and to achieve a political settlement, end quote. It was obviously aimed at Milosevic, but it was also a coded threat to the Albanians as well. And then on March 23rd, 1999, Richard Holbrook returned to Brussels and announced that the peace talks that they had been arranging had failed for and formally handed the matter to NATO for military action. Hours before the announcement, Yugoslavia announced on national television that it had declared a state of emergency, citing an imminent threat of war, and began a huge mobilization of troops and resources. On March 23rd, the Secretary General of NATO, Javier Solana, announced he had directed the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, U.S. Army General Wesley Clark, to initiate, or to quote, initiate our operations in the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, end quote. On March 24th, NATO started its bombing campaign against Yugoslavia. So NATO's bombing campaign lasted from the 24th of March to the 11th of June, 1999, involving up to 1,000 aircraft operating mainly from bases in Italy and aircraft carriers stationed in the Adriatic Sea. Tomahawk cruise missiles were also extensively used, fired from aircraft, ships, and submarines. With the exception of Greece, all NATO members were involved to some degree. And I think Greece probably abstained given their uh, interesting uh, relations with the place in that area, yeah. um, especially like Macedonia and stuff. So over the 10 weeks of the conflict, NATO aircraft flew over 38,000 combat missions. For the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, it was the second time it had participated in a conflict, conflict since the Second World War after the Bosnian War. So basically the Luftwaffe did nothing until Bosnia and then again in Kosovo, <laughs> interestingly enough. But the proclaimed goal of the NATO operation was summed up by its spokesman when he said, quote, Serbs out, peacekeepers in, and refugees back. So essentially the goal was Yugoslav troops would have to leave Kosovo, be replaced by military peacekeepers from NATO, and ensure that Albanian refugees could return to their homes. A large problem with conflicts like this and refugees is that it's really difficult for refugees to return, typically. And I think that to try and stop a further humanitarian crisis that was already kind of bad, they wanted people to be able to go home as soon as possible. So the campaign was initially designed to destroy Yugoslav air defenses and high-value military targets, but it didn't really go that well at first, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was some adverse weather conditions, which made it really difficult to actually like hit targets but what also made it even worse is that nato drastically underestimated milosevic's will to resist so few in brussels thought that the campaign would last more than a few days and although the initial bombardment was not insignificant it did not nearly match the intensity of the bombings of baghdad in 1991 so they kind of like underestimated milosevic didn't hit him with as much firepower as they could have and as a result and also bad weather so it wasn't really a good outing for NATO. It wasn't bad, but not great. So NATO operations sort of switched to increasingly attacking like Yugoslav units on the ground, including individual tanks and artillery pieces, as well as then continuing with strategic bombardment. The problem NATO had, this was like really NATO's first major outing as a group. 
The activity was heavily constrained by politics, as each target that was to be destroyed needed to be approved by all 19 member states. So that's not like the most efficient of processes in terms of determining your targets. Montenegro was actually bombed on several occasions, but NATO eventually desisted in order to prop up the precarious position of Montenegro's anti-Milosevic leader, Dukanovic. I probably just butchered his name, so sorry. Any Montenegrins who are paying attention to this? Um, I'm going to point out a couple of places where NATO bombing also had some pretty bad effects. So the beginning of May 1999, a NATO aircraft attacked an Albanian refugee convoy, believing it to be a Yugoslav military convoy, killing around 50 people. NATO admitted its mistake five days later, and the Yugoslavs accused NATO of deliberately attacking the refugees. But a report conducted by the International Criminal Court opined that the civilians were not deliberately attacked in the incident and that neither the air crew nor their commanders displayed the degree of recklessness in failing to take precautionary measures which would sustain criminal charges. So basically nobody was found to be at fault for that because they weren't clearly, like, they weren't clearly, like, willfully negligent when there was no actual intent to kill anybody. And then on May 7th, 1999, NATO bombs hit the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, killing three Chinese journalists and outraging Chinese public opinion. <laughs> so the U.S. and NATO later apologized for the bombing, saying that it occurred because of an outdated map provided by the CIA. But this was actually challenged in a joint report from The Observer in the U.K. and a Danish newspaper, Politiken, which claimed that NATO intentionally bombed the embassy because it was being used as a relay station for Yugoslav army radio signals. Another report stated the root of the failures in the target location, quote, appears to stem from the land navigation techniques employed by an intelligence officer, end quote. So basically, like, there was a bunch of contending reports about this one incident, but at the end of the day, I think it was probably just a mistake. And then, yeah, by the start of April 1999, kind of jumping around date-wise here, but that's how this works. <laughs> um, by the start of April 1999, the conflict had not was not appearing to be any closer to the end, so... Like, the 78-day air campaign really wasn't doing a lot other than accidentally killing civilians. And so NATO forces began to seriously consider ground operations. UK Prime Minister Tony Blair was strongly in favor of committing ground troops, whereas President Clinton was pretty reluctant. Blair actually would make ready 50,000 50, troops, which I believe made up, like, almost all of Britain's available army power at the time. That weren't reserves anyways. But at the same time, Finland and Russia had sent diplomats to try and negotiate and persuade Milosevic to back down. So uh, at the same time as NATO is doing their thing, Russia was also actually quite actively involved in randomly with the help of Finland, who is not a NATO member, just so everyone's clear. Still to this day, not a NATO member. Um, but Milosevic finally recognized through this whole process that Russia was not actually going to intervene to defend Yugoslavia despite the fact that Moscow is obviously very anti-NATO, and they still are. But I think Milosevic was hoping that that rhetoric would turn into actual support. But Russia was pretty keen to have this conflict end as well, because it really put them in an awkward position with NATO. And at that time, they were also having their own conflicts in the South, in the <laughs> republics. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, Milosevic realized that Russia wasn't coming to rescue him and thus accepted the conditions offered by a Finnish-Russian mediation team and agreed to a military presence within Kosovo headed by the UN, but incorporating NATO. Basically, the point was, we're going to send in troops that actually have a little bit more teeth than UN peacekeepers did in previous instances. Because by this time, I think that everyone had learned that nobody was fucking around here. <laughs> like, we're not, we're done with this. A lot of people have, a lot of people have died. We're not fucking around anymore. Everyone was just kind of done. <laughs> they were done with Yugoslavia. They wanted Yugoslavia gone. 
The only, <laughs> the only person at this, or like people who didn't want Yugoslavia gone at this point was Milosevic. Yeah, like I think that everybody else had pretty much had it up to here with with Milosevic and his bullshit and everyone dying and it was just getting bloody and untenable and not good. So well, here it is, like almost fifteen years later, we're still fucking talking about him. Yeah, exactly. What a dick. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, anywho, after this treaty was signed or whatever, um, or this agreement was signed, Norwegian special forces preparing for a June 12th invasion worked with the KLA to gather intelligence and act as scouts to monitor events in Kosovo. So they went in on, like, the 10th of June. Yeah, they were the first into Kosovo and also the first into the capital of Pristina. Their job was to clear the way between the contending parties and to make local deals to implement the peace deal between the Serbs and the Albanians. So the Norwegians were there before the British, and the British were basically like second ones in because they had the most people ready all of a sudden because Tony Blair was like chomping at the bit, apparently. And then on June 12th, after Milosevic accepted the conditions, the NATO-led peacekeeping K-4 entered Kosovo officially. So before they had just been launching Tomahawk missiles and airplanes at the problem, and now they had forces on the ground. But also, as I mentioned earlier, there was a non-NATO contingent involved, and so that actually meant that Russian troops were involved. So following the military campaign, Russian peacekeepers became involved, which proved to be, like, a bit awkward and tenuous because (laughs) the Russians expected to have an independent sector of Kosovo, and then they were unhappily surprised with the prospect of having to operate under NATO command. So not only do they really fucking hate NATO, now they had to work work under NATO commanders rather than just, like, work in the same country. So they were pretty pissed about that. And as a result, without any prior communication or coordination with NATO, Russian peacekeepers entered Kosovo from Bosnia and occupied the Pristina International Airport ahead of the arrival of NATO forces. So they pretty much went and were like, ha, fuck you, NATO, we're taking the airport. And resulted in an incident in which the NATO Supreme Allied Commander, Wesley Clark, he wanted to forcibly block the runways with NATO vehicles, but that request was denied by the K-4 Commander General Mike Jackson. So he managed to de-escalate the situation. And I don't really know a whole lot about what happened with the Russians and NATO kind of after that point. But, I mean, obviously, they didn't, they didn't, like, totally throw down. I think it just kind of, like, was a tenuous situation in which they worked together and moved on, kind of. Because I don't think Russia's involved anymore in Kosovo, but I could be wrong. I have no idea. But well, what I, what I kind of know is the way the Russians... And NATO worked together in Kosovo. They kind of gave each other those looks, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah, I mean, they. I think they both, at the end of the day, had common goals in ending the nightmare that was going on. I mean, they didn't have all common goals, but, I mean, the common goal of ending the nightmare that was that was this conflict, I think, was pretty... Yeah. Pretty. Well, I mean, it had gone on for so long, and, I mean, Russia had been through some pretty serious governmental changes in the process of this whole thing yeah. happening. So, I mean, like, Milosevic... I think he could traditionally rely on Russia, but, I mean, he certainly couldn't rely on them once it was a democratic nation. By 1999, like, Yeltsin wasn't even president. So, I mean, I I don't think that, like, there was no serious conflict between the Russians and NATO and Kosovo, but it certainly hasn't, like, helped. I think there's still some hurt feelings, though, because, I mean, Russia still obviously hates NATO, and they really hate that NATO is completely, like, invading their sphere of influence in Poland and stuff like that, which is actually why... I made a point of pointing out that Finland isn't part of NATO because it's a really contentious issue with Russia because NATO keeps wanting Finland and Sweden to join and Finland and Finland basically won't, number one, because the Swedes haven't and they sort of still rely on Sweden to be their guide. But two, also, they like 
realized that if they joined NATO, Russia would absolutely, like, throw down and would retaliate, and Finland economically relies really heavily on Russia. So, like, I actually took a class in my study abroad semester on, like, basically, like, NATO and Russia and kind of the, the Baltic and how, like, Finland has to navigate this really awkward position. So I find it really interesting that, like, Finland was part of the negotiations in this situation because they're kind of like a neutral power. They get along with NATO nations, but they also have to toe this awkward line of getting along with Russia, too. So they're kind of like the perfect go-between in a weird way. Well, I don't think Sweden would ever join NATO. Um, Sweden's thought about it, but they won't either for the same reasons that Finland won't, in part because Sweden's always remained neutral, but they also know that if they joined uh, NATO, Russia would be really displeased, and they still are close enough to Russia that, like, it's a problem. I mean, they've found Russian submarines in Swedish waters pretty recently, so... That's true, I forgot. They've got to be... Uh, and, like, there's been flyovers of Norway from Russian planes, too, so... Like it's, yeah, Norway it's, is part of NATO. Yeah, Norway was one of the founding members of NATO, hence why they were also the first first people in Kosovo mm, <laughs> on the go. ground. But And Iceland, shout out to Iceland. They were a founding member of NATO. Uh, and they have no army. No, but they did because of protection. Reasons. I know, yeah, but... Interesting fact. Iceland doesn't have yeah, an army. Police force. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't really know what happened to Russian peacekeepers. I don't know when they left Kosovo, if they ever left. I assume they did and went to Chechnya, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Uh, I didn't really look too hard into that, but I should. So anyways, but in this whole process, and I think the war at this point, like the the hot part of the conflict really ended kind of with Kosovo Enter or with sorry K four entering Kosovo, there was yeah not a lot of it. Kind of because Milosevic's troops were leaving, so basically well, the entrance of NATO forces meant that Milosevic had kind of capitulated and was starting to back out. Yeah, and also because the JNA lost most of their troops because the Bosnia, Slovenia, and Croatia all were had all left by that point. So any of those members of the JNA just were like, okay, well I'm going to go home then. Yeah. So they didn't have a huge force. I mean, they didn't have a, even have a huge enough force, really, to properly combat the KLA. No. I mean, at this point, I think that they'd been pretty, like, decimated by people just, like, deserting. And also people not really just because, I mean, ideologically, I don't think that Milosevic really had a stronghold on a lot of them yet any, anymore. I think he was really losing his, his power. Um, well, one of the things that's interesting is, like, Milosevic was a hardcore socialist, Interestingly enough. Yeah. But at this point, he was in a coalition with the Serbian Radical Party, which is a far-right Serbian irredentist party, which <laughs> I will talk a bit more about later. Yeah. But this kind of proves to you how, like, just because he was a socialist doesn't mean all of his policies were socialist. Well, and he'd been in power for, like, a good 20-some years at this point. So, I mean, I feel like it's pretty common when you're... You've been a leader for more than, like, a decade. And it's not even just, like, dictators, but even just, like, in general. I mean, look at, like, you know, Harper can rarely didn't make it to 10 years. Like, once you've been leading a country for, like, there is kind of a, an expiration date on it, right? You start to lose your hold after a certain point. And it happens. And I mean, and not that I'm calling Harper a dictator, because, like I said, it's not. It's just being, <laughs> it's just being like, the the leader of a country for that long. Eventually, you start to kind of, like, lose your that like power a little bit because people start to like see through what you've done or what you haven't, what you haven't done sometimes, like what you've failed to do. And um, I think that he had kind of lost, and I think he lost Milosevic lost face a little bit too, because of just some of the shit that went down in 
Bosnia and these other places too. Well, I think that's one benef- one huge benefit of a democracy is we see different people yeah. take power. But yeah. I'm not just saying like, oh, it's good that we have that we have elections and whatnot. That's no. not what I mean. No. I mean it's good to have a fresh new. Well, it's actually why like I do appreciate things like term limits because yeah, you you need that change. Like even if it it remains the same party, you need that change in like face even just because at some point like internationally, diplomatically, that leader might not be taken as seriously seriously near the end of their term versus somebody who, you know, has just come in. They might have some fresh ideas. They might have a fresh take on things. So, yeah, no, I I would agree with that. But just one last note here before I turn things back over to you. In this whole process, the Yugoslav and Serb forces displaced between 1.2 and 1.5 million Kosovo Albanians. And so the main goal, one of the main goals of NATO... Uh, NATO's involvement, like I had said, was to actually get refugees back. And uh, after the end of the war in June 1999, a pretty significant portion of the refugees actually had returned to their homes or had started returning to their homes. So while the NATO mission is arguably pretty controversial, I guess, well, not even I guess, it's pretty controversial, um, but at least they had kind of like achieved one of their goals, at least, was to try and bring people back. But at the same time, and I'll just briefly mention this, at the same time, I don't know if it was entirely successful because you brought people back into a really unstable situation. And one of the biggest things to happen during this whole period is that Kosovo became a really big hotspot for human trafficking. So a lot of women and girls were trafficked from uh, Montenegro and Macedonia and Kosovo and these places during the conflict because it was really easy, even though the war might have been over, things were still unstable enough that it became really easy for these elements to come in and, and take advantage. So, eh. Yeah. Um, well, if you, if you, you guys, know, can't be too happy. Or yeah, anything. if you guys seen the, for those of you who haven't seen Bowling for Columbine, you're kind of missing out. Yeah, it, it's, it's a great documentary. It's, it's a good documentary. It's got good things, but they mention how on the same day the Columbine shooting happened, uh, it was the largest NATO air campaign in Kosovo. And I looked this up, and it was true. And uh, one I mean, thing, love I, or hate Michael Moore, he's not going to fuck that fact. Up. No, but it, but it was it was true, and I looked this up. There's an announcer, like, he has clips of an announcer saying, like, uh, the NATO t- target targeted um, hospitals and primary schools. Uh, when I looked this up, NATO had hit one hospital and one primary school. <laughs> so it's not that they were targeting them specifically. I'm not saying, I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> it's not great that they hit these things, but I'm just saying to say that that was their main targets is kind of... Yeah. It's very misleading, I would say. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, what I found is they hit one hospital, one primary school, which is awful, obviously. Yeah. But, yeah, it was the largest of the – it was the largest single-day air campaign during the conflict. It was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, no, I think, like, it's a really uh, difficult kind of conflict. To, it's like on one hand, having NATO there probably had some – might have stopped things sooner than it might like than otherwise, but at the same time, like also potentially just cause more problem more. Yeah, I help. I agree with that to a yeah I don't know to a bit, but I think they gave the KLA too much benefit of the doubt because as you're gonna find out in just a moment, KLA weren't very good people. Even the Canadian UN commander, or not UN commander, Canadian NATO commander, ad- admitted that he, they were duped by the KLA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you'll find out. 
Yeah. Sorry, people who support the KLA, but it, no, <laughs> they're kind of pieces of shit. You'll find out in a minute. Uh, but I'm going to start with uh, the Serbian. There were atrocities committed by both sides and NATO, whether intentionally or unintentionally. He's neither here nor there when it comes to NATO. But anyway, the uh, the Serbian atrocities, it's quite the list. <laughs> So, unfortunately, we we do have to talk about this, but like we said, one of our philosophies here at Panastoria is we need to talk about everything and not sugarcoat it. So, the Serbian forces, as mentioned before, the, both the police and JNA forces were definitely, or they definitely used excessive force against civilians. This resulted in mass injuries and death. So in response to the NATO bombings, Milosevic ordered Operation Horseshoe to commence. And what the plan was, it was, I have to say this, an alleged attempt to expel Kosovo's Albanian population in order to maintain control. To this day, Serbia denies that that was the goal. So in March 1999, Serbian police and JNA soldiers physically attacked Albanian citizens and destroyed much of their property. Mass displacement of the population was a result of the campaign. So in an effort to remove Albanian citizens, they, they dated back to the summer of 1998, in which 100,000 people were displaced during that time. During the midst of the NATO bombing, the Yugoslav deputy prime minister was quoted as saying, quote, if it comes to the NATO bombings, if it comes to the American aggression, we Serbs will quite suffer but the Albanians in Kosovo will be no more, end quote. Yeah, that's the kind of people you're dealing with. Good people. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, that was all sarcasm. I know. So the NATO bombings, they actually led to an escalation in Operation Horseshoe in order to quickly get it completed. JNA forces, Serbian police, and Serb paramilitaries coordinated together to conduct acts of violence against Albanian civilians to expel them en masse. The strategy adopted of surrounding a village, shelling the village, and then followed by police and soldiers moving in, and they would commit acts of beating, rape, and murder against the local populace. Personal identification, passports, and various other documentation was confiscated by authorities in order to prevent people from returning once they were driven away. Land titles and birth records were also targeted and often destroyed. So when Lindsay said that a lot of, that it was quite difficult for refugees to return, that's why. Because they didn't have any documentation. They didn't really have, like, they didn't have proof that they lived there. Just their word. So imagine the kind of the headache when they went back and then had to get all this documentation back because a lot of people lost all of their identification, everything. So it was as if they didn't actually exist in the eyes of the government or anything. You could almost argue they didn't exist in the, exist in the eyes of a lot of people. I mean, it was like a difficult situation internationally even to manage because, I mean, like, everyone wanted them to go home, but no one was really... Not that many people were active in helping them either. Like, yeah, the Red Cross, and, like, there was lots of help, but at the same time, like... Well, it's interesting because, like, talking to people and it's like they they remember Bosnia, a bit of Croatia and, like, Yugoslavia. And then you're like Kosovo and they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot that there was something I think something people were there. pretty checked out by the time Kosovo happened because it had kind of dominated news cycles for a while that, yeah. Um, well, the, that and there's also stuff going on. Well, the Gulf War. The, well, not, had no. Had already happened, so that's Had already happened, yeah. But, like, there are also internal issues in the United States around that time. Oh, yeah. 
So there's that. <laughs> I mean, like I say that as if there <laughs> rarely is. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> but I think because the Gulf War was not that old, part of, I think, maybe like that part of like partly probably influenced a little bit of Clinton's like reticence to commit to ground troops until he absolutely had to. Just in terms of international involvement, I think people were pretty tired of all this conflict, right? They'd been the news cycle was pretty much over on by the time Kosovo happened. I mean, yeah. Bosnia and that they dominated headlines for a while, and then, I mean, well, <laughs> once things drag on long enough, people kind of forget that they're happening. Well, going back to Columbine, I'm sure that also took up a lot of the media space because yeah, I I I remember hearing. Oh yeah, like, it did. It definitely changed the news cycle for sure because then. The the 24-hour news decided to spend all their time psychoanalyzing their music choice rather than dealing with gun control. But um, well, yeah, they were they were dealing with that, but they're also talking about because like this, it was a tragedy that's not really that was. It was like the first, I think, major. I mean, I'm not going to say that, but I think that it it did definitely like capture. uh, There might have been. I'm sure there were mass shootings before that, but I think this one was just so like. I don't know. Some, I think there was a number of elements that made it so um, so hard to ignore that it really just dominated the news cycle. And so things like Kosovo were... And I mean, at the end of the day, too, Kosovo is a pretty tiny, tiny place that I feel like is not really first and foremost in the uh, minds of a lot of a lot of people who aren't yeah, directly co- like connected to it. Yeah. You know, like it's one of those small conflicts where like, oh, yeah, that sucks. Like, what do I do? I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I definitely don't agree that it was used as a deliberate distraction. No, by, it like, wasn't. The I think it was just that it, it was a major thing that it, it was a major event that occurred. And it just basically like I wasn't trying to argue that it was. Much no, no, I know. I'm just, I'm just yeah. point, putting that out. I there. just think that it like people's attention spans are short. The news's attention span is short. And it's like, well, this is a lot more of a real human tragedy to most Americans because it happened in like the heartland. It happened in in it happened America. in suburbia. Yeah, like it happened in these places. It happened in a place that hasn't been war-torn for like almost a decade, you know? Like it it, it happened in a place that is, I mean, Colorado by all sta- by all by all understandings is a pretty stable place compared to to former Yugoslavia. So, it was like it I think it had more of a personal connection and like hit home for a lot more people and so it just dominated the news cycle and took over from something that was like maybe a little bit esoteric and difficult to grasp for most I think for most people. Absolutely. But I think that has a lot to do with well the like the fact it was like of all the conflicts other than Sylvania, I think Kosovo was the second quickest one to be kind yeah, of over. Yeah, well, I think part of it is like well. And I wonder if like Unlike, unlike Slovenia that just sort of like happened and I don't think we talked really briefly about it, but not a lot like seriously happened with Slovenia, but Kosovo, I think ended quickly. And I wonder in part if it ended quickly because of just the sheer amount of like military force just thrown at it to try and get it to stop sooner. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, it might've made it worse in the long run, but I think unlike with Slovenia that kind of just like nobody... Milosevic didn't actually care that much about Slovenia. Well, no, there were not enough. There were not, the thing about it is like... You you read there's there's like there's not a lot of um, Serbians in Slovenia, so he didn't give a shit. But then because he let Serb Slovenia go, it kind of caused that domino effect where all of a sudden all the republics are like, sweet, they're gonna let us go. But then the difference with Kosovo, if you remember, like when I said the demographics, there wasn't a huge Serbian population there. But the problem is that Serbia sees Kosovo as part of Serbia. It doesn't see it as exactly separate 
it never did. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's why it was so adamant to keep Kosovo and why it still kind of is. I mean, things are changing a bit now, but anyway, we'll get to that in a bit. So... So an estimated 200,000 Albanians displaced within Kosovo and with a further 70,000 fleeing to neighboring countries, mostly Montenegro. Thousands of villages were burned to the ground and a total of 525,787 refugees by the third week of the, of the NATO bombing had occurred. 440,000 fled to Albania 320,000 fled to Macedonia, and the previously mentioned 70,000 were in Montenegro, with a further 30,000 in Bosnia. A month later, the number increased to 781,618, and by June it was 862,979. So you can see how huge, like we talked about how big of an issue the refugee crisis was. Yeah, that's how quickly it was escalating and i dare to say probably nato had a little bit of a hand in that because when you're dropping bombs yeah i mean throwing tomahawk missiles at the problem probably is going to create some collateral damage absolutely like yeah collateral damage like destroying people's homes destroying people's lives operation horseshoe only came to light after the bulgarian government intercepted yugoslav documents and handed them over to the german government so the German government were the ones that blew the whistle on the... Well, the Bulgarian government blew the whistle on this, and then the German government brought it to the international attention and the media. It caused quite a storm. There is an estimated 20,000 victims of rape by the hands of the Serbian forces. 225 of the 600 mosques in Kosovo were either damaged or destroyed by the JNA, 65 of the 103 Albanian language libraries were destroyed. 900,588 volumes of records were destroyed. And then the destruction of the Islamic libraries resulted in the loss of countless records, books, and various pieces of literature that did not have any copies. So all of these pieces of literature and records and whatnot are completely lost to time, and we will never, ever, ever know what they said. So we may have lost some really great pieces of knowledge. Yeah, well, yeah. Destruction, I'll, to I'll me... Talk to, I'll actually talk a little, bit, a little bit about that when we get to... In a little bit, because um, all that, like, did, like, all that destruction actually comes back to kind of haunt Milosevic a little. Well, I've, I've said this before in the podcast, but I think it was on Museum of Controversy, actually, actually, as I think destruction of heritage should be considered a war crime. It actually is. Oh, it is? Yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about, sort of. Awesome. Okay. There is a massacre in Mesia. In May 1999, which resulted in 300 deaths at the hands of Serbian police and Serbian paramilitary, there was an attempted cover-up ordered by Milosevic at the start of the bombing campaign with orders to remove all bodies before their presence was recorded by the Hague Tribunal. Rumors of between 1,200 and 1,500 bodies buried at the Trapezia mine were actually proven false, although bodies were brought there and cremated. Most of the bodies were transferred to Serbia and buried in mass graves. And in the 2001 Serbian government actually revealed 86 bodies were thrown into the Danube River. Hmm. So the Danube River, if everyone knows the Danube River, it's kind of a famous river. It's known for its like beauty and history. Well, they were throwing bodies into it. I mean, not good for any river, but 
And it's also just disgusting in general. Well, that's Serbia's atrocities. The Kosovo-Albanian war crimes were also quite the list. So yeah, the KLA actually conducted their own campaign of expelling ethnic Serbs from their villages, where ones of which they have lived in for centuries. So any Serbs who remained defiant and chose to stay vanished without a trace and remain missing to this day. It is widely agreed that these people were kidnapped by the KLA and killed or died in captivity. So the Red Cross and the ICTY, which is the International Court Tribunal of Yugoslavia, estimate that 97 Kosovo Serbs were kidnapped in 1998. The Serbian government claims 287 were kidnapped between January 1st, 1998 and June 10th, 1999. So the KLA had a thing about kidnapping. Not just, like, they weren't holding them for ransom, they were just kidnapping them and either making them disappear or intimidating them to disappear. 90,000 Kosovo Serbs and non-Albanians were forced to become refugees. After the JNA withdrawal, 200,000 Kosovo Serbs and non-Albanians were expelled from the country by the KLA, making Serbia home to the highest number of refugees in Europe at that time. The Human Rights Watch concluded in the 2001 report that the KLA conducted hostile acts against Serbs, Roma, and various other non-Albanians, with Albanians even falling victims to the activities. Yeah, Albanians were killed by the KLA, or beaten by the KLA. They didn't really care. It didn't matter if you were Albanian. If you were against what they were doing, they were going to... Yeah. 10% of KLA fighters were under the age of 18, with some being as young as 13. So child soldiers. Still a huge topic of controversy today, for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, NATO was supporting a group. Well, I mean, I'm sure they're still kind of supporting groups that use child soldiers, but that's neither here nor there. The KLA used concentration camps in Kosovo and in Albania. However, the number of those incarcerated and killed in these camps are low, although it is still horrific that this was a thing. The highest number I could find was 39 killed in one camp. KLA were accused of mass organ theft for sale on the black market. I remember hearing about this during my time in school. Yeah, apparently there there's a huge black market for organs that the KLA took advantage. It's not proven. It's unsurprising. I mean, given that I believe the KLA was actually involved in human trafficking efforts as well for like oh, yeah. sex trafficking. So my guess is that I'm like super not surprised that they would also be involved in organ trafficking because there's... A lot of money to be made on the black market for organs, especially from killing like young, healthy people. Yeah, a lot of money can be made, and also certain organs. Not that I know from personal experience or anything. Just we're learning more about your personal. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, these aren't proven, but there is evidence to su- suggest that these activities did occur, including they found medical equipment and traces of blood surrounding several buildings within Kosovo, which is kind of suspicious. I mean, you could argue, oh, we we were using it as a makeshift hospital, but eh. Yeah. eh. But I mean, most of the bodies that were, like most of the time, the KLA would probably burn the bodies, so there's no real evidence to suggest. And as Lindsay mentioned, yeah, the KLA were, were were largely responsible for human trafficking in Kosovo even after the war. Yeah. So there's, a, I mean, there's a reason why they don't exist anymore. I mean, I was even looking this up. Apparently, the KLA aren't even that well regarded within Kosovo. No. It's a very controversial topic there, of course. It's one of those 
topics you don't talk about. But there was, and there was, like, there were further ethnic clashes in Kosovo, too. Like, after the war, I think there was one in 2001 and, like, one later on as well. Yeah, there um, was. I just don't remember the dates now off the top of my head. I think th- that I actually... I him down like an idiot. One of the, yeah, the one you're talking about in uh, 2001, the KLA attempted to make an insurgency in Macedonia and got whipped. Right, <laughs> that's what it was, yeah. There was another one, too. But, yeah, I mean, really just to, to bang on this drum, like... These things are not over. Like, just because there's no more technical war happening in these places, like, there's a lot of tension still. And it's really, like, not a healed wound at all. Well, Kosovo, I think, is the most contentious today. Actually, I think Bosnia is just because of the fact that, like... I mean, Kosovo is because they still have troops there, technically. But Bosnia, like, is basically, you know, one step away from descending into the chaos it was part of. Like, it really hasn't gone very far. Like we talked about with the, with the Dayton Agreement, right? Like the Dayton yeah. Agreement's been in place for a lot longer than it was ever intended to be in place for, which means it's basically just like duct tape in a leaky ship. Like it's not, <laughs> it's keeping it from going down immediately, but you're like, you know, one rough storm away from sinking Basically, to yeah. follow that analogy through. That was a terrible analogy, but you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I know, I know, I know exactly what you it's, mean. Uh, no, I think... Duct tape on a leaky boat is a good analogy yeah, for like, it. Like you're pretty, they're pretty close to going full Titanic. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's um, not, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. Well, to finish off the atrocities, the KLA destroyed 155 Serbian Orthodox churches and monasteries. Still laughing right now, but yeah. Well, nervous laughter. Yeah. So 155 Serbian Orthodox churches and monasteries were destroyed between the 11th of June 1999 and March 19, 2004. So yeah, the, these bastards are still tearing shit down long after the war, long after it's supposed to be done. Well, the KLA disbanded in 2005. Because they were largely by then the Kosovo population were had were kind of done with them, and there was also crackdowns by the Serbian police force. Because if you remember, depending on who you talk to, they're still part of Serbia, but that that at this time they were definitely still part of Serbia. And so the yeah the the KLA no longer exists. Thank God. So now that the war is over, things are all hunky dory, right? Nah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You should know by now that that's a that's a trick question, yeah. listeners. Basically, things are never hunky dory. <laughs> basically, at this point, Yugoslavia is a rotting corpse that just will not, just refuses to admit that it's dead. It's just hanging on. Sorry for that image, but that's basically what it is. They still tried to continue as Yugoslavia, even though it was just Serbia, Montenegro, and <laughs> Kosovo. And Volvidinia. We didn't forget about Volvidinia. <laughs> but the UN refused to admit them into the UN if they were named the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. They didn't want Yugoslavia to be the name anymore. They were done. Everyone was done. Yeah, I think it was pretty obvious that that whole experiment was dead. Yeah. Well, okay, so Milosevic, by this point, was holding on to power by the skin of his teeth. Even the Serbian people were sick of him. They were done. They were done with violence. They were done with his oppressive rules. They were like, Yugoslavia is dead. We're done. So he scheduled early elections for 2000. And he was defeated in the first round by opposition leader. I apologize. I'm going to butcher this. 
Voyislav Kostunica, leading an opposition, a block of opposition parties known as the Democratic Opposition of Serbia. And it was a big tent kind of party. So it was included both parties that were on the right of the spectrum and on the left of the spectrum. Basically, the one thing they agreed on is that they hated Milosevic. I mean, you don't have to agree on a lot except who you hate. Well, yeah. I suppose. So the Electoral Commission actually, despite Milosevic losing, the the Electoral Commission actually found their voting irregularities favoring Milosevic. So even though he rigged the election a bit, he still lost. (laughs) So You know people fucking hate you? Yeah. When you lose an election, you rigged to win. Milosevic, I don't think that's how it works. (laughs) No, it's not. But regardless, Um, people still fucking hate him. Yeah, they hated him. They rigged the second part of the election. So part of it was the, the sum of the valid and invalid votes did not match the total number of votes. Or voted, like, people who voted. Nonetheless, Milosevic attempted to stall his removal from power by pointing out that, that a runoff was necessary as no candidate had won a majority of votes. Surprise, surprise, without the voting irregularities, the opposition <laughs> leader did win. So because of this, outrage erupted and workers from the Kalubara mines began a strike on September 29th, 2000. This was a big deal because most of Serbia's electricity was produced from coal that was mined from there. So they were at the risk of going cold. Well, I mean, maybe not around that time. I don't know how cold Serbia gets <laughs> at the end of September, October. Any, If chilly. our Serbian listeners are still listening. Yeah, hopefully we haven't pissed you off Sorry, enough. we love you. We're not talking bad about Serbia. We're talking bad about... The leaders and so anyway, I'm just making this worse. But you can correct me if you're still listening. What's I mean, your I weather like? I can't imagine it would be that. I mean, it wouldn't be like that warm, but it wouldn't be that cold. It'd be probably like kind of rainy. Probably, yeah. That's my guess. It's fairly south, so like yeah, rainyish. Hundreds, of, yeah, probably. So hundreds of thousands of protesters from across Serbia rallied in Belgrade and called for Milosevic to step down. So in a move that shocked everyone, the police actually did not quell the protesters and instead they just maintained order and civility. They were expecting massive, like they were prepared for a fight with the military and the police force, but the police was like, nah, we're just going to make sure you guys are okay. <laughs> I, as you can tell, even the police were like, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the protests remained mostly peaceful, although there were moments of violence and two deaths were a result of it. One was the result of an accident and the other was a result of a heart attack. And 65 people were injured during rioting. This place, this is known as the, the bulldozer revolution. And the reason why is because there is a vehicle operator named Lyubisov Le, Le, Dosic, a.k.a. Joe. So I'm going to be calling him Joe <laughs> from now on. He commandeered a wheel loader and drove it into the Serbian state television RTS station with the intent of breaking through the doors to let protesters storm the building and shut down Milosevic's run media. However, his loader turned out to be unnecessary because the building was taken without him. Literally, they just opened the doors and walked in. But and it was took a it symbolic. It was very thing. symbolic, obviously. So, yeah, because of this, it is known as the bulldozer revolution. And, yes, we know a wheel loader isn't a bulldozer. And so do the people who named it this. But wheel loader revolution doesn't have the same catch. Yeah. <laughs> so, Milosevic refi- 
refused to resign immediately, and he said he would continue until the end of his term in June 2001. But the protesters were rising in numbers, and there was no signs of slowing down. And also, he was he greatly lost the support from military and police. And there was a risk of things turning violent because a lot more wheel loaders entered the city. <laughs> and <Well. laughs> so, you know, it's a good protest when industrial equipment gets involved. Oh, yeah. So you really was, piss people off when the yeah. workers are like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to bring the heavy equipment. <laughs> bring in the heavy guns, kind yeah. of. So well, you Milos- have tanks, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> so Milosevic resigned on October 7th, and Kostunica took his office as president. The Democratic opposition of Serbia became victorious in the parliamentary election that December, and by then Milosevic was indicted by the ICTY, and he was arrested by Serbian police in Belgrade after a standoff between police and Milosevic's bodyguards. I, I just want, sorry, I should quickly say before moving on. By this point, one of the things that the opposition bloc did is in 2003, they actually changed the name from the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia to the State Union of Serbia and Montenegro. Because, yeah, Montenegro, they were still... They, they were, were just thing. anti-Milosevic. They were cool with Serbia. They just hated Milosevic. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so Milosevic wasn't, I guess, actually arrested till 2000, but he uh, was indicted in May of 1999. During the Kosovo War by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. The ICTFY no longer exists. It was just the special tribu- like tribunal for this actual case. But the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is still a thing. We had this discussion in our little pre- pre-production meeting. <laughs> so just FYI, the ICC does still exist. Although it is still controversial because the United States has not ratified it. Anywho. Yeah, so Slobodan. We're going to learn that there's a lot of bad people named Slobodan in this story. Um, so Milosevic, this, this Slobodan Milosevic, yeah, he was indicted in May 1999 for crimes against humanity in Kosovo, charges for violating the laws of, laws or customs of war, grave beaches of the Geneva Conventions, and Croatia and Bosnia, and genocide in Bosnia were also added a year and a half later, so by the time he was actually in the Hague, he had the full weight of all of his charges, and they were these, I will list them off. So the charges on which Milosevic was indicted were... Genocide, complicity in genocide, deportation, murder, persecutions on political, racial, or religious grounds, inhumane acts slash forcible transfer, extermination, imprisonment, torture, willful killing, unlawful confinement, willfully causing great suffering, unlawful deportation or transfer, extensive destruction and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly. That was a crime that you'd talked about as being an issue. Cruel treatment, plunder of public or private property, attacks on civilians, destruction or willful damage done to historic monuments and institutions dedicated to education or religion, unlawful attacks on civilian objects. So that's just like a, the overall smattering of all the bullshit that he was part of. <laughs> um, which is a lot. I mean, like anytime someone's charged with extermination, that's not really great. But yeah, as I... as. Jonah had brought up he and believing that like the destruction of property and things like that should be a war crime. It actually is because he was charged with multiple counts of it. Following his transfer to The Hague, his charges were upgraded to also include things that happened in Bosnia and Croatia. On top of all the stuff that happened in Kosovo. In January 2002, Milosevic accused the tribunal of, quote, evil and hostile attack 
against him, end quote. So he wasn't really excited about being indicted on all those charges, clearly. But yeah, the trial began at The Hague on the 12th of February 2002 with Milosevic defending himself, which, as you can imagine, went really well. And the prosecution took two years to present its case in the first part of the trial, where they covered the wars in Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. Throughout the two-year period, the trial was being closely followed by the public of the involved former Yugoslav republics, as it covered various notable events from the war and included several high-profile witnesses. Milosevic, while defending himself, read from Friedrich Naumann's book, Middle Europa, claiming it was a long-standing objective of German foreign policy and the, gerbil- the German Liberal Party in particular to, quote, erase Serbia from the map, end quote, citing a number of alleged wrongdoings by Germany against Serbia during the last hundred years, including the recognition of Croatia and other countries. So he was still clearly pretty bitter about Germany recognizing the break-off states of the former Yugoslavia. And he actually pointed... <laughs> so he was, like, really salty... And he pointed out that Klaus Kinkel, the German foreign minister who had proposed the creation of this tribunal, was a German liberal. So basically he's like, it's it's your fault that you want to get Serbia. (laughs) Basically accused him of wanting to get Serbia off the, wipe Serbia off the map. So like, his defense was essentially just like a madman raving. When in doubt, call someone a liberal. Basically. So during the prosecution's case... 295 witnesses testified and 5,000 exhibits were presented to the court recording just like that's an it's a massive evidence. So after the presentation of the prosecution case, the trial chamber on the 16th of June 2004 rejected a defense motion to demiss the charges for lack of evidence and ruled in accordance <laughs> with, ruled that the prosecution case contains evidence capable of supporting a conviction on all 66 counts. So like Basically, they had 5,000 exhibits, 295 witnesses, and Milosevic is like, it's not enough. <laughs> um, so, Just quickly touching on, I mentioned in a previous episode, it's like people have asked me why the courts are still going. Because just the sheer number of... Oh. 5,000 pieces of evidence? Like, just for that. Like, just for Milosevic, not even the other people. I mean, he was, you know, probably the worst, but regardless, like, just the sheer amount of time and energy it would take to get through that would, yeah, like, so the defense was also given the same amount of time as the prosecution was to present its case. So, I mean, in all fairness, like, Milosevic got given a shitload of time to prove his case, and I don't know how much evidence he had. Did he take up that time? Or did he just spend all that time talking about Middle Europa? I'm not really sure, but (laughs) apparently a lot of time was spent accusing Germany of things. (laughs) <laughs> Which, like, prior, in prior decades, I guess, was probably fair enough. But, like, anyway, there was, in total, 466 hearing days, and each day was about four hours per day. Four hours isn't actually a lot, but, I mean, when you're dealing with the heavy topic of, like, genocide, four hours is probably plenty. So there are actually 40 hours left in the defense case, and the trial was scheduled to end by the end of that spring. So the prosecution had been directed by the trial chamber to conclude its Kosovo case during four and a half to five months' time span to make way for the presentation in September 2002 of the Bosnia and Croatia cases, and then followed by Milosevic and his defense if he wanted to do so. So initially the length of the trial was presumed to go for two years and instead lasted four that contained multiple adjournments and ended with his death. But basically... The thing that was originally, the crimes he was originally indicted for were for actually in Kosovo rather than Bosnia and Croatia. They added those after the fact, which I think in part was because they had the most evidence for Kosovo. And I think 
it was also the most like recent, so it was easier to just initially charge him with that and then find things after. It's like when you're charged even now, like you get charged for the most recent case and then they can add things on after once they have that evidence. And I think also just Bosnia was probably so difficult to deal with the evidence and deal with discovering things that ugh, I don't even want to think about that. It's not not got to be great, but mm-hmm. yeah, Milosevic was indicted for crimes during the Kosovo War and he was charged with violating international humanitarian laws on five counts. The first charge was deportation, which is a crime against humanity. Uh, the prosecution stated in their case that he was part of a criminal enterprise and involved in orchestrating a campaign of violence and terror to force a sizable part of the Kosovo Albanian population to leave and maintain Serb, Serb control over Kosovo. Uh, the second charge was other inhumane acts, because that's not vague. Um, <laughs> other inhumane acts dash forcible transfer, which is also a crime against humanity. And it's similar to deportation, although it also additionally implies the use of force encompassing internal dis- displacement. The third and fourth charges entailed murder, combined in this instance as a crime against humanity and violating the customs and laws of war. 600 Kosovars were identified in the indictment as being killed in 16 individual incidents during mass expulsion. In addition, based on the exhumations of mass graves and the number of missing persons, human rights organization estimated that around 10,000 Kosovars had been killed during hostilities, with KLA combatants only actually forming a small minority of that group. So also counted were unarmed combatants killed in violation of the International Criminal Court Tribunal Statute and Geneva Conventions. The fifth charge was persecutions, also crimes against humanity. The indictment referred to Milosevic using mass, mass forced population deportation and transfer, sexual assault, murder, along with damage or destruction of Kosovo Albanian religious sites, quote, to execute a campaign of persecution against the Kosovo Albanian based on political, racial, or religious grounds, end quote. The charges, charges relating to the crimes against humanity, the prosecution had to prove that armed conflict occurred, systematic and widespread attack existed, and the conduct of Milosevic was related to systematic and widespread attack upon a civilian population, and that he was aware of the wider situation where his conduct happened. So, like, they couldn't really pin directly on him some of the actual acts because there's no real proof that he was physically there killing people. But basically all of this guy is under the guise of, like, well, you were the commander, so you had the ability to stop it. So it's basically like complicity. So the prosecution also had to prove that Milosevic had the necessary state of mind for crimes that were willful, intentional, or having a disregard of consequences for human life by actions committed by himself or his subordinates. So apart from the need to prove intent or for committing the crime of persecution, the prosecution had to demonstrate that those actions were taken were undertaken with the intent toward discriminating on religious, political, or racial grounds. Which is, like, difficult to prove, but, I mean, I feel like Milosevic probably gave them things to work with. <laughs> Yeah, within the context of Milosevic as an individual, charges against him related to individual and and, and command responsibility. So in this case, he was accused of ordering, planning, and instigating alongside aiding and abetting towards planning, preparing, and executing crimes, with the act of committing being in reference to participating in a criminal enterprise and not being physically responsible for crimes. So like I said, like he wasn't physically there murdering people, but he was complicit in every possible way. He was also charged by the prosecutor for failure of his command responsibility and responsibility as a superior for acts done by subordinates, where a superior was aware or knew that a subordinate was on the verge of violating international humanitarian law or committing war crimes, and that a superior failed to undertake measures to stop actions or punish perpetrators. Command responsibility was held by Milosevic, the prosecution alleged, due to his position along with control and power, 
having no regard for his toward his position or both. So like the last charges, like the way they were able to charge him is kind of interesting to me because it's almost like this is sort of how the criminal court works, right? Like they'll charge you with murder, but they can't really, the people they're charging with murder, they're charging with like, you didn't physically murder the person, but because you are in command, you are therefore responsible for not stopping it. So that's like the difference between a court this size versus like, you know, regular courts. And it's also more like military focused in this case because he was the leader of the military, essentially. I mean, he had generals, but they were his subordinates. <laughs> You're the commander in chief. But the trial never finished because Milosevic was found dead in his cell on the 11th of March, 2006 in the War Crime Tribunal's detention center of The Hague. Autopsy has seen established that Milosevic died of a heart attack. He had been suffering from heart problems and high blood pressure. Some people voiced that uh, the heart attack might have been caused possibly like deliberately, but uh, it wasn't. I doubt it. He was it. just sick. But Milosevic's death actually did occur shortly after the tribunal denied his request to seek specialized medical treatment at a cardiology clinic in Russia. So, <laughs> I mean, he was said he. I mean, I don't know that that really caused it, but he was at least denied treatment in that sense, probably. And I mean, honestly, I'm sure there was better health care in the Hague anyway. For him, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I imagine in which way though. I mean, I imagine he wanted to go to Russia because once he was in Russia, it was going to be hard to get him back. So, yeah, in the indictment, which was yeah judicially confirmed in two thousand one, or sorry, um, yeah, the chief prosecutor Carla Del Pont de- delivered her public statement following his death, saying the indictment, which was judicially confirmed in two thousand one, Milosevic was accused of sixty six counts of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes committed in Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and. Kosovo between 1991 and 1999. These crimes affected hundreds of thousands of victims throughout the former Yugoslavia. And due to Milosevic's death during the trial, the court returned no verdict on the verdict on the charges. But on the 24th of March 2016, the International Court Tribunal issued its judgment in the separate case against former Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic in which it concluded that insufficient evidence had been presented in that case to find Slobodan Milosevic, quote, agreed with the common, cl- common plan, end quote, to create territories ethnically cleansed of non-Serbs during the Bosnian War of 1992-1995. The judgment noted, quote, Milosevic's repeated criticism and disapproval of the policies and decisions made by Karadzic and the Bosnian Serb leadership, end quote. And in a footnote, the, quote, apparent discord between Karadzic and Milosevic, during which Milosevic openly criticized Bosnian Serb leaders of committing crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing and the war for their own purposes, end quote. Nevertheless, the court also noted that, quote, Milosevic provided assistance in the form of personnel provisions and arms to the Bosnian Serbs during the conflict. So, I mean, they, could, they weren't able to actually pass a judgment, but they kind of noted that even though Milosevic was really critical of Radovan Kradzic, that in the end he also still provided people to help him, so... At the very least, he was, like, complicit in that sense. Was it Krasic that they found posing as a holistic medicine expert, or was that Mladic? Or, yeah, Mladic. Mladic. I can't remember which one. Yeah, one of them was posing as a... uh... Oh, wait. Well, yeah, he was arrested in Belgrade on the 21st of July, 2008. One of them was posing as a... uh... Holistic medicine. Oh, expert. yeah, it was him. It was him, okay. Yeah, so it says uh, while a fugitive, he worked at a private clinic in Belgrade specializing in alternative medicine and psychology under an alias. His nephew, Draga, Dragan Karadzic, has claimed in an interview that Radovan Karadzic attended Serie A football matches and that he visited Venice during using a different alias. He was, was arrested in Belgrade on the 21st of July 2008 and brought before Belgrade's war crimes court a few days later. 
He was then extradited to the Netherlands and is in custody of the International Criminal Tribunal, where he was charged with 11 counts of war crimes. And he is sometimes referred to as the Butcher of Bosnia. For good reason. For good reason, yeah. I believe he was the one responsible for the for the massacre in Srebrenica. I believe you're correct. But so. I could be wrong. But, uh, yeah, the international criminal court trials, like, take forever because there's just a shitload of evidence. And even just, like, getting their hands on some of these people takes forever. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to find them, first of all. But, uh... <laughs> Apparently, they hide out doing holistic medicine. It's a place to look. Um, But there was actually another guy on trial, and Jonah made made sure we talked about this because this guy actually committed suicide during his trial on TV. He drank a vial of poison on live TV. So if you want to know about this other monster, so his name was also Slobodan, like I said. A lot of bad people named Slobodan in this particular story. Slobodan Proliak was among six accused by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in relation to the Croatian Republic of Herzeg, Bosnia. <laughs> On the 5th of April 2004, he voluntarily surrendered and was transferred to the ICTY. In his indictment, it was alleged that Praljak, as a senior military official, commanded directly and indirectly the Herzeg, Bosnia, HVO armed forces, which committed mass war crimes against Bosnian Muslim populations in eight municipalities in Bosnia and Herzegovina during a joint criminal enterprise between 1992 and 1994. In his role as a high-ranking official in the Ministry of Defense, he was closely involved in all aspects of not only the Herzeg-Bosna military planning and operations, but the actions of the HVO civilian police as well. On the 6th of April, he appeared before the ICTY and pled, and pled guilty, and he chose to defend himself without a lawyer. So his indictment was charged on the basis of their individual and superior cr- criminal responsibility, but subsequently in judgment only on the basis of individual criminal responsibility. He was found guilty... Um, Wait, he pled guilty? He pled guilty. So he okay. was... Okay. Yeah. Or, sorry, he pled not guilty, but he was found guilty okay. of uh, four counts of grave breaches of the Geneva Convention. So willful killing, unlawful deportation, transfer and confinement of a civilian, inhuman treatment, extensive discre- destruction of property and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly. That is the longest charge ever. And then he was found on six counts... <laughs> of violations of the laws or customs of war, so cruel treatment, unlawful labor, destruction of, or willful damage done to institutions dedicated to religion or education, plunder of public, private, public or private property, unlawful attack on civilians, and unlawful infliction of terror on civilians, as well as five counts of crimes against humanity, so persecutions on political, racial, and religious grounds, murder, deportation, imprisonment, and inhumane acts. The trial began on the 26th of April, 2006, and on May 29th, 2013, the trial chamber judgment sentenced him to 20 years of imprisonment. And on the 28th of June, 2013, Praljak filed an appeal. On the 29th of November, 2017, the ICTY was concluded, finding him guilty, and although some parts of his conviction were overturned, the judge did not reduce the initial sentence of 20 years. Which basically was a life sentence for him at that point. He was, what, 75? Something like that. He was charged with crimes against humanity, violations of the laws or customs of war, and grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. Also, extensive appropriation of property not justified by military necessity, <laughs> etc. He was acquitted on some charges related to the destruction of Stari Most, which is an Ottoman bridge in Bosnia. As he had already served more than two-thirds of his sentence in jail around 13 years and seven months, he would probably have been released soon. 
But during the pronouncement of the appeal judgment against him, Pralyak addressed the judges, saying, quote, Judges, Slobodan Pralyak is not a war criminal. With disdain, I reject your verdict. And then he drank. What he said was poison, leading presiding judge, Carmel Agius, I probably just messed up his or her name, to suspend the hearings. The ICTY medical staff transported Pralyak to, to a nearby hospital where he died. The Dutch authorities declared the courtroom a crime scene and launched an investigation. His body was cremated in Zagreb in a private ceremony. So, like, that's one way to go, I guess. Well, the, the thing is, go, I, it's kind of weird to recommend this, but you should watch the video. It's not graphic. No, he just drinks a vial. He just drinks a vial. But you, the reason why I say watch it is, you just, like, all of, everyone there is just like, okay, what the fuck do we do? Like, they, yeah. they're just stunned that this well, happened. Because on, like, one hand, he says it's poison, but, like, I mean... Is it poison? Do you, do you, do you believe the psychopath on your... Yeah, like, they, you, they, and then he started getting really ill. So yeah, they, but they, they, don't know, they didn't know what to do. No, they, I mean... They're just like, okay. So the, the, the man you were talking about, the presiding judge, was like, okay, we're going to um, dismiss the court for today, so can we roll back the curtains? Because yeah. there's, like, the gallery there. Yeah. People watching, can we roll back the curtains? That's not true. And then, the, and then the video, like... The video ends, mm-hmm. and yeah, he was taken to a hospital, and he died. Yeah, I mean, which, like... So it was poison. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, frustrating, I think, too, just because, <laughs> like, it's so, I mean, like, it's just so frustrating that you, like, can't actually hold these people to justice because they fucking died. Well, when you hear... Especially Milosevic, but I mean, in fairness, Milosevic yeah. was old as fuck by this point. But yeah, well, when you well, so was this guy. But when you hear about he how when you I know, but when you hear about what effects the poison has on you in the short time you have left. Oh yeah, it's pretty vicious. It's very vicious. So I I'm mean, just like, yeah. It wasn't a peaceful death by any means, but it's also just like, I feel like that really like it's kind of like the last like sort of shitty act that Pralyak, you know, yeah. committed because it's like I'm now gonna take away. Any opportunity for the people I hurt to feel any justice because, like, yeah, I'm going to die, but I'm going to die by my own hand and none of you are going to get me. And it's, like, defiant. It's just defiant on his part. That's why he did it, right? And I respect that. But it's also, like, I, I, I just, I can imagine also of, like, the families of people and, like, anybody affected by anything he did would be, like, well, fuck you. Well, hopefully people, <laughs> I mean, if you, if <laughs> he's one of the reasons why I'd like to think hell is real. Right. So if you, as long as people think hell is real, that he is getting his, I guess. I mean, I get it. It's shitty that he didn't face justice here on Earth, but it is what it is. Well, and what's interesting is that the Croatian government actually like kind of defended him in a weird way when he died. So like, I'm just kind of reading this as I go, but basically it was like. The Croatian government offered condolences to Pralyak's family and said the ICTY misrepresented its officials in the 90s. Prime Minister Andrei Plenković stated that Pralyak's suicide illustrated, quote, the deep moral injustice towards the six Croats from Bosnia and Herzegovina and the Croatian people, end quote. All the party caucuses of the Croatian parliament, except the SDP and the GLAS, issued a joint statement declaring that the ICTY's verdict did not respect, quote, the historical truths, facts, and evidence, and quote, that it was unjust or it was unjust and unacceptable, adding that Pralyak symbolically warned of all the verdicts injustice with his suicide. They expressed their condolences to the families of victims of crimes committed during the Bosnian War. Croatian President Kolinda Grabar Kitarovic expressed her condolences to the Pralyak's family, calling him, quote, a man who preferred to die rather than live as a conflict for crimes he did not commit. End quote. Miroslav Tujman stated it was a 
quote, consequence of his moral position not to accept the verdict that has nothing to do with justice or reality, end quote. So basically, like... <laughs> See, the problem with the other republics is that... That's, like, a not the reaction anybody would really be. Well, yeah, but, like, the thing is that there are the other republics, a lot of the leaders in the other republics still don't really want to admit, or they refuse to admit that their side did anything wrong. Well, I mean, there's still so much nationalism tied up in it, right? Like, so I just read it further and it says that President Grabar Katarovich has been pressured to take away wartime decorations from Polyak and other convicted officials, but she refused to do so, stating that they received it for defense against Serbian aggression, adding that, quote, such practice has not been implemented so far, except in the case of verdicts made by the Croatian courts. So, like, they basically are refusing to acknowledge the... And this has always been the problem with the ICC, is that a lot of people, and I mean, again, like, when I say the United States hasn't ratified it, like, that's a big deal, because it means that basically they're choosing to not believe in the authority of this court, which it's, like, frustrating because you know, they have uncovered all of this really horrendous shit that happened and they're probably the, one of the more objective voices in dealing with these things. And if there's no way to hold people accountable <laughs> for the crimes they commit, then, I mean, what's stopping them from doing it more? Yeah. And so it's like, but it's really easy for, like, the government of Croatia in this case or anybody to just be like, well, it's not a valid verdict. I'm not going to accept the accept this verdict. Yeah, well, it's like, Okay, it's not a, you. You say it's not valid, but you are your people are in jail. Yeah, I mean. I mean, it's not like they send them back to the country where no, they, they came keep from. them in the Netherlands. Because so yeah, like, pe- a lot of people on this tribunal, even though it took a long goddamn time, were convicted and are now serving their sentence. I mean, Vladic and Grazic are serving their sentence right now. Mm. I think in the Netherlands. Yeah, they they serve it in the Hague. Okay, so there's a detention center in the Hague that they. Yeah, they're going to die behind those walls. I mean, the argument is that the prison in The Hague is probably a lot nicer than the prisons in their own countries, but... Um, <laughs> Possibly. Regardless. Well, I mean, if they go back to their own country, who's to say... Well, I mean, just in general, though. Yeah. Like, for general criminals, I'm sure it's a much nicer life to be a prisoner in The Hague than in somewhere in Eastern Europe. Probably. But, uh... But they're behind bars and hopefully being haunted by the people that they killed. I hope so, but I somehow doubt it. <laughs> I would hope that they're being haunted. <laughs> so on that note the no that's over though the war's over so but here's there's still some events that happens later on for example Montenegro held a referendum on independence on May 21st 2006 with 55.50% voting in favor Serbia accepted the results and Montenegro became fully independent on June 3rd 2006 the Republic of Kosovo declared independence on February 17th, 2008. I'm sure most of us are listening remember that when that happened. So it remains controversial today, of course. So independence is recognized by 113 UN member states, including the United States, UK, Canada, and most of the EU. Those who do not recognize Kosovo include Russia and China, who are two permanent members of the UN Security Council. And another country that I found kind of interesting that it doesn't accept it as independent, but actually when you look into it, it kind of makes sense, was Spain. Mm, yeah, they probably don't want to because they don't want to... Uh, Entice Catalonia? Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with, with Scotland. China and, and also China with Taiwan. Yeah, but I think most of it has to do with Catalonia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's meant, why... I just meant, like, China not recognizing is yeah. likely because they also don't want to give legs to Taiwan or 
Yeah, that's true. So Kosovo has actually been successful in improving their image with Serbia, and the, but the latter continues to recognize Kosovo as an autonomous region and, res, and respects the autonomous par, parliament, but states that it's a part of Serbia. Kosovo recognizes the autonomous status of the Kosovo Serbs living in the north, and recently the EU brokered... Uh, the Brussels Agreement, which helped form cordial relations between Kosovo and Serbia, allowing both governments to work past their differences from the war and formulate proper relations. And despite the refusal of accepting Kosovar independence, Kosovo continues to manage its affairs independent from Serbia. And also, there was like a recent thing in the news, I don't know the full thing, but they actually made a territorial exchange. Because they were like, okay, there was... Practically all Serbians living here, but you say it's part of Kosovo, and then there are a whole shit ton of Albanians here, but it's part of Serbia. Why don't we swap those pieces of land? And they did. So, like, who knows? I think eventually Kosovo will be fully recognized as independent. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to take a a bit longer, of course. But, yeah, it's only a matter of time. So, Slovenia and Croatia are members of the European Union since 2004 and 2013, respectfully, with Bosnia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and even Kosovo in various states of application to join. All have become relatively stable in the aftermath of the wars. There's continued political issues in Macedonia in particular. Recently, actually, it was recent that the opposition parties formed a coalition to oust the governing party i can't remember what they're called from power but like before that whole thing happened uh police actually entered parliament on the side of the ruling party at the time and roughed up the opposition parties and even tear gas was thrown into the parliament uh now that's kind of quelled down because they don't have power anymore also there's still some issues with greece over the naming dispute Bosnia's politics are dominated by Bosniak and Serbian nationalist parties. The Croatian population are generally civic nationalists, like I mentioned before, although there is still remaining discontent because they got, well, squat, essentially. (laughs) The Serbian Radical Party, which I mentioned before, is a far-right, ultra-nationalistic and irredentist party having significant support politically. I think the third largest party in Serbian parliament at this point. Luckily, they're not part of the governing coalition, but one party that is was Milosevic's former party, the Socialist Party of Serbia, albeit they are far behind the ruling Serbian Progressive Party, which is born out of the opposition bloc from back in the day. There are still questions surrounding the future status of Volvodinia, and there's actually been predictions from scholars, including one of my profs, that that would be the next contentious place similar to Kosovo. Having looked at the demographics, I'm not convinced personally because 66.76% of the country or of that area is Serb. The only place I can see it being a bit of a difficulty is in the far northern regions because that has a majority Hungarian population, but I'm not convinced that Volvodinia is going to be, you know, the next Kosovo because it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Unless the Hungarians in the far north do something, but they haven't. I mean, there's the most I found is that there's calls for increased autonomy there. Mm, that makes sense. But they're already pre- they're already an autonomous like they have an autonomous parliament there, but they they're not like Kosovo where they're like we're independent. They just say we won't, we're not. And they're like no, we're we're fine with this autonomy for now. So 
also all have become interesting or all have become popular tourist destinations due to their natural beauty and the number of intact historical sites ranging from greek and roman architecture to medieval architecture to traditional slavic and other regional architecture yeah also game of thrones in croatia it's part of the reason why their population or their tourist tourism increase was because game of thrones films in dubrovnik yeah also like their beaches are becoming more and more popular and um it's cheap (laughs) it's cheap yeah it's just you see photographs of it it looks beautiful oh it's amazing i've actually i haven't been but i have a lot of my friends have gone so far and i really want to go there but like I mean, now, admittedly, like I, because uh, I had, I have it on my list of kind of my next, uh, like European vacation destinations. I've got like my next trip planned, and like a lot of it actually will take me to like the Balkans. And it's kind of interesting now having done these episodes because I'm certainly never gonna look at it the same way again. No, like, there's really. there's no possible way to go to these places and not think about just like everything that happened and all the tension that still does exist. It's just really well hidden. And it's amazing how having any kind of prosperity might make it seem like it's not a problem anymore. Like I'm interested to see how Croatia kind of continues to move on now that especially things like tourism are booming because it's easy to sort of hide any internal issues when people are at least like making money i guess yeah that's so i'm curious to see how things continue to develop in that region yeah that's Um, that's a big problem in these is that nationalism is still oh yeah hugely in the politics except slovenia yeah slovenia is pretty chill yeah well i mean i think slovenia is pretty chill just because of how well they watch everything else unfold and they're like okay but (laughs) they watch that but also their own bid for independence wasn't long and drawn out no they, but I think it, it also, they probably learned more from the other, the other, like they probably learned more from the other country's conflicts than anybody else. And we're like, let's never do this. Yeah. Well, they're definitely <laughs> probably the most progressive of yeah. that region. I think so too. And I mean, there is definitely, I remember I was talking to, I have a friend in, in the Czech Republic uh, shout out to Yurka if you listen to this. Um, <laughs> and I remember talking with him about the split up of Czechoslovakia and how part of the reason why like the Czech Republic and Slovakia are actually still very close allies is that when they decided to split up, they decided to, they saw the tensions in Yugoslavia. Like, before, I mean, obviously like they kind of Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia kind of split up around the same time as Yugoslavia, but they saw so much of the internal tension and strife in Yugoslavia before the breakup that those that's Czech, the Czech Republic and Slovakia decided like, hey, let's not do that. That looks like a nightmare waiting to happen. And they like actually did things very diplomatically and intentionally with the point of like, no, we would like to be allies. We just can't be the same yeah. country. Well, there's no real animosity between no, the Czechs and the aren't. Slovaks. They're quite close because they... They realized that they have such a, a shared history and everything. They just weren't, it wasn't working as one country. So it was easier and better for them both to split up and remain close allies rather than remain one country. And um, I think it was just really interesting kind of talking to him about how it was, because I mean, it could have it had the ability in many ways to be equally as contentious as the Yugoslavia situation was as well, because I mean, there's so much crossover between Slovaks and Czechs and like each, and like the Sudetenland and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there was lots of like, I mean, that area is also quite diverse and there was potential for the same amount of nationalism and bitterness and violence that happened in Yugoslavia. I feel like 
it could have happened there, but they decided they had some leaders who were very progressive and very just like they were motivated to not go down that path because I think that it easily could have and I think it easily could have happened in a few other places too but oh yeah uh, and still well, can it's just interesting that they've like kind of just comparing the two like the different routes they went and like and especially to even thinking about the two countries like prior to this because like when we're talking about Yugoslavia Yugoslavia was like so open to the world they let their citizens travel they let citizens travel within them and then the Czech and Czechoslovakia didn't really and then like <laughs> They totally end in opposite ways. Like the Czechoslovakia ended in a very peaceful and like prosperous way for both countries. And Yugoslavia just like imploded. Exactly. (laughs) In every sense possible. Imploded and splintered. Yeah, it's crazy because like all that stuff was happening at the same time, but such different results. I have a really funny story. Speaking of Czechoslovakia, Taylor, if you're listening, you know what story I'm going to tell. Well, uh, Taylor is this guy. I knew him from high school, and uh, we became friends because we share the same birthday, date, year, and everything. Uh, so one day we were in social studies class, and he it was early. It was in in the morning. This is yeah, uh, it was in the morning, and he comes in, and he's not really a morning person. I'm not really a morning person either, but uh, he comes in and he sits down next to me, and he's like, "You want to know something stupid?" Czech Republic split up and became Czech and Republic. And I was like, but I think it was called Czechoslovakia and it became Czech Republic and Slovakia. <laughs> so that's our running gag with each other. I, I like one time I called his wife. I was like, she's the Czech to your Republic. <laughs> <laughs> like stupid shit like that. And recently uh, he was doing a crossword or yeah, a crossword and uh, the, Kent was uh, Czech region. And he's like, help, it's a Czech region, and it's not Czech Republic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just just a funny tangent. But, yeah, Taylor, if you're listening, I love you, bud. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I always got to bring that story up. Nice. So that's Yugoslavia done. That's so season one, a wrap. That's season well. one, a wrap. But we, I think we were originally not really intending to do seasons, and it's worked out that it's like, just we're definitely doing we're def- seasons. Yeah, well, uh, we need a break. Yeah. We need a break. We're not, I'm not calling it a hiatus. I hate that fucking word. No, it's just um, a season break, basically. It's just a seasonal break. We'll be back sometime in January. January. But Probably. before we leave, if you notice the past couple episodes, we didn't do What Did You Learn This Week? And it's because this, I'm counting this all as one episode, so I didn't want to do why thing anyway i didn't want to do it at the end of every single part so we're gonna bring it back today so Lindsay, did you learn anything did you Um, learn anything did i learn anything this week like on reddit or something nope (laughs) apparently not i learned a lot about mythical monsters getting geared up for fantastic beasts or something no god no i done with the whole harry potter shit um but uh for example, in Australia, there's a town called Bunyip, Australia, in Victoria, and it's named after the mythical Bunyip monster. Nice. So it just comes to show how much it's like, oh, I love, like, the, even though it's like a horrific monster kind of thing, because he eats cattle and children that get too close to the water's edge, but people are still like, we still have a soft spot for our <laughs> weird bit of uh, mythology. Yeah. So is that? Oh, um, something I did learn, actually. Sorry, I did learn something. 
Um, I learned that, so last night I was watching the Raptors game and there was actually a female officiate or a female ref. And so I looked into it and the the first female ref in the NBA debuted on October 31st, 1997 at the Vancouver Grizzlies season opener. And, uh, she refed a total of 919 games Mm. in the NBA in her career. Um, she was also the first ref to, the first female ref to ever officiate an all-star game. And I was trying to figure out how many female officials there are in the NBA, and I couldn't really get a solid number, but I think there's at least, like, I want to say at least 11, and they just promoted a bunch from their minor leagues. So that's one thing I did learn this week. That's cool. That's, that's a good that's a good one. Anyway. I just forgot that I learned it. Guys, season one is over, Ugh. and we've made it so far. So already, it's yeah. crazy how should we, should we, we tell the, to... Should we tell the listeners about, like, the things we're going to work on in this break? Uh, fuck yeah. All uh, right. Well, first and foremost, we're going to work on sleeping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, it's been a very busy couple of months. Um, as some of you know, I also have my own, like, side business where I make soap and everything, and I've been just, like, so busy with, with markets and trying to sell things that I haven't had a lot of time but also uh, just general holiday ramp up, and I think we're both pretty, really feeling that feeling that stress and that that busyness, and so we just decided that we weren't even really going to try and do much into December because there's just <laughs> no point. Well, um, I mean, it would be suicide if we were to do stuff like yeah. do this on top of everything, Christmas, and you've got well, your markets. And in reality, I, I feel like people need a Christmas break, and as one of my my friends um, pointed out. Shout out to Crystal doing her her PhD comps at USASC. You got this, buddy. Um, <laughs> she uh, pointed out that you all might need time to catch up on episodes. So there's that, too. That's true. Um, 17 please, hours. Please spend this holiday season listening to everything that we've done. To those who've been here from the beginning, thank you so fucking much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. This wouldn't be an episode if we didn't shout out to him. Yeah. It, um, and then I think the other one of the other main objectives is uh, finding some money for this this podcast. Yes, that's so. going to be a big one. I'm going to try and find sponsors, although apparently, like, just looking into that, it's a bit iffy. I keep getting an email from this woman who says uh, if we, we sign up for what she does, she they put ads into the hmm. podcast, and I'm like, I don't want no. to do that because one of the most like the thing I hate is that it breaks up the rhythm of podcasts it breaks up the rhythm and it also it's one of the most fucking annoying things when i'm on youtube oh, yeah i mean there's a reason i have ad block on my computer but i don't have it on my tv yeah and i watch because i watch youtube on my xbox when i'm like working on this and whatnot it's just an ad just pops up at the wrong spot it's so Every annoying time. and the other so thing we don't want to do that what i'd prefer to do is like at one point we come to a break in the podcast and be like give us uh a shout out to the product and give that thing i hope you guys are okay with that because if you're not it sucks to suck you better start subscribing on patreon because unfortunately these things cost money to produce and as much as we'd like to remain independent as independent as possible and we're always going to try we also need to survive um <laughs> and, and and make this better i mean we're both like really dedicated to doing this we've had a really good first season we've learned a lot about what we can and should be doing and we've got some cool ideas for season two so um i mean holiday gift idea if you have a history lover in your life get them a patreon subscription hey i mean like that'd be the awesome. most you're gonna be spending is like 10 bucks a month 
which isn't really a lot, but it gets you lots of fun perks. Yeah. Including, can... while there's not, there's only one current subscriber. Thanks, Brian, again. Uh, you might even get your name shouted out at every episode just because, like, there aren't that many right now. The only so reason think why of we, it that way. The only reason why we're shouting out Brian in, like, every single episode since he's subscribed it's is because really he's, our, he's yeah. our only Patreon. And also, it's kind of just become a running joke. It has become a running joke. Only because he's the only one subscribing. So, yeah. like, if you start subscribing, then we might even be able to shout your name out. Well, if it, with a $5 subscription, you do get a one name shout out. In one episode, and then we have your name. We're gonna we're gonna be having launching a website soon. Yeah, that's another um, goal for this holiday. Yeah, break. It's, we're gonna be launching a website soon at some point, probably mid next season. We don't know, but you're gonna have your name listed on the website as a supporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you subscribe with for ten dollars, you oh, and plus you get access to like. Stuff on the on the page that we post, like we we're posting uh, articles, articles that we've written. Like we say, articles. <laughs> Lindsay's for Lindsay, it's legit articles. For me, it's just papers I wrote back in the day. Well, I mean, like it's mostly just papers I've written too. But okay, but I she's mean, actually been published. People, I haven't. Huh, that's actually my other plan for this holiday break because I have another publication to work on, and I'm like. I'm like approaching that deadline having done pretty much nothing. So I should probably get on that. If you're listening, publisher, sorry. Well, that's that's what we're going to be working on. Also, just, again, like Lindsay said, sleeping. And finding a place to record. So and we finding don't have a place. to do this on the floor. Anymore. Yeah, we may. I have to give a huge shout out to Megs Kilgore. I already gave her a shout out on our first episode, but I got to give it again because she fucking went above and beyond for us. And she, I don't want to give away too much, but we may have found a better recording space. Than the floor of Jones Than the basement. floor of my basement. So it's not going to be... The only thing of... Like, the one thing that I was so excited about this possibility, I'm like, there's not going to be echoes anymore. <laughs> Although I think it's been better since we moved to the floor. It has been a bit better, but still, no echoes, people. And also no sitting on the floor. So yeah. Bad. I'm going to give more details once I get in touch with this person, but... It's well, basically, possible. once we have it sorted out, we'll make an announcement. But we might have a fucking studio. We don't know. We're just so excited. Anyway, Megs just went above and beyond. It would be great. I'm going to leave a link to her Twitch account on the Panastoria page. So please go check her out. As she's she's really into supporting other artists, and so she's been super supportive of us. And I believe that I need to return the favor. I know she says it's not a favor. She's just looking out for me. But I do feel I need to return. The kindness and go and check her out. She makes art. She does commissions. She does these awesome shirts, which one I'm wearing and one I just gave Lindsay for Christmas. The Rat Burger t-shirts, you'll see them. But anyway, go check her out. I'll leave a link to her page on our Panastoria page. So go check that out. I think that's everything. Yeah, as always, please like, subscribe, comment, review, etc., etc. Um... It actually really does make a difference when you respond to things we post. It helps Facebook and Instagram, who's now owned by Facebook. Um, it helps our Facebook overlords uh, know that people want to see our content. So just like a couple fire emojis here and there it goes a long way. Yeah, it'd be great. Um, just so you know, we're not going to be completely... We're not going to be completely away from the page. Nah, we'll, still, be, we'll be posting through the holidays. We just won't be recording anything new. So Yeah, we're, we're going to be posting... We'll just post the regular stuff like... Um, on this day's, like yeah. if it's something really interesting comes up, we'll, we'll, we'll be posting that. And we're um, also going to be taking some suggestions potentially for things that people want to hear. We're not really going to do a poll necessarily right away, but just if you have, as always, I mean, if you have something, some event that you want 
covered or think would be really good for us to cover, please send them in. I mean, that's how we got the Yugoslav War once. Absolutely. Like, once again, shout out. Send in everything. We're going we're gonna to do a poll eventually, just we're not worried about it right now. We've got a lot of content to yeah. talk about lined up, but we're always interested in hearing what you guys are interested in and also um, maybe those events we're overlooking. Or as always, if we've messed up something, please tell us. <laughs> also, tell us, did you used to watch Mr. Jessup back in the day? Because that seemed to be very popular, that post. Yeah, I mean, it's Mr. Jessup. It is Mr. Jessup. So, anyway, with that, I think that's also... Have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever. Happy, happy holidays, happy everybody. Holiday it's gr- going to be a great December, even though it's feckin' cold here. And if your weather blows like ours, just listen to more podcasts. Hey, you got time to catch up. Anyway, thank you guys so, so much. Hope you guys have a safe time during the holidays. We hope to see you back next season. Almost said next semester. <laughs> Maybe we should call them semesters instead of seasons. We should probably do that. That's a good stylistic choice. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much. This is Jonah signing off. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you, guys. Have a good one.